Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing to Let's Talk Memoir. This is the final episode for season one. I've had such a great time putting this show together and am very grateful to all the memoirists and experts that were my guests for these 15 episodes. I so appreciate their time and generosity. And in order of their appearance, here are my thank yous to Deborah Gwartney, Janine Olette, Christy Tate, Ellen Blum Barish, Andrea Ross, Meg Weber, Melissa Gould, Jane Friedman, Debbie Lewis, Kelly Sunberg, Paulette Perhatch, Laura Davis, Judy Bolton Fassman, Philip Lopate, and this episode, which features Dr. Ginger Campbell. So, before I was a podcaster and before I was a memoirist, I was a fiction writer. But before I was a fiction writer, I was an actor. And I never wrote. I just performed, went on auditions. And it wasn't until I moved to Los Angeles where I did some theater at the Actors Gang that I got the opportunity to write some sketch and monologues for some of our shows. And that was really fun. And my sister, who's younger than me and a writer herself, had told me on and off for years that maybe I should try writing. She even gave me a writing book or two and would ask me about it. So cut to I do a couple of performances of my own work and then I have a baby and I moved to Seattle and I start taking writing classes and after I had written and published some fiction I decided to go to grad school and I entered my graduate program for fiction but after about half a semester I realized you know I am really being drawn to memoir. And I had seen Deborah Gwartney, who was a nonfiction teacher at my grad program, lecturing at one of our residencies about memoir. And I never heard some of what she talked about, which was excerpted from Vivian Gornick and Philip Lopate, and just this idea of what memoir should have, what it can include, and the complexity of the form. So I switched tracks. I started going into nonfiction and Deborah and I talked and I started writing my memoir. And, you know, prior to that, I kind of was like not into memoir at all. In fact, I was a little bit of a self-hating memoirist because I felt like I was just going to be complaining or just talking about my woes. And so many people had it worse than me and all the navel gazing and all the misunderstandings that are often go hand in hand with memoir. And I even reread some memoirs that I had read when I was a fiction student and found a new appreciation for them. When I was working with Deborah Gortney, I began drafting my memoir, When She Comes Back. And I was revising it and revising it and revising it again, hoping I could tell my story in a way that conveyed my experience growing up and what I make of it now. I was thinking about how children try to understand their roles and survive and where that left me as an adult and what it keeps me grappling with now. I was wondering if I'd written enough scenes, if I'd created a balanced portrait of my parents, if I'd held my own feet to the fire, and so many of these other elements that memoirists juggle and keep in mind, especially once they've started to understand sort of the dichotomy and memoir of the divided self. 
and what Vivian Gornick described as being able to show the loneliness of the monster and the cunning of the innocent. And that was a really new concept to me. Let me fast forward. I created Let's Talk Memoir because I've become a total memoir convert and find there's so much to think about and consider about the genre. And so far, my guests in this season and I have covered character versus narrator in memoir, ways to approach writing, trauma, finding the thread in your story, writing about our children, looking at our manuscripts as a whole, all about publishing, believing your writing has value, the case for generosity in memoir, the divided self, as I mentioned earlier, and this episode, memory and memoir. My next season will feature a fresh batch of episodes addressing these and other areas of memoir that often come up for writers. And if you love memoir or you write memoir and you just enjoy writing, you might also feel the way I do, which is that I can never stop learning or re- learning what I think I already know, because every time I hear it or study it, it kind of reconfirms what I want to focus on and how I want to be approaching my writing. So this is going to be the last episode for a little while. And in the meantime, you can find Let's Talk Memoir posts, guests, photos, and helpful quotes and advice on Instagram and Facebook at Ronit Plank. I also have two other podcasts available. The first is And Then Everything Changed, which has over 100 episodes featuring interviews with survivors, authors, and people in recovery about what they feel are the pivotal moments in their lives and the decisions that have defined them. And my limited series, The Body Myth, which has interviews with women about their body image experience in the U.S. You can find my memoir, When She Comes Back, anywhere books are sold, and also get it as an ebook and audiobook on that giant online platform. My next book, the short story collection Home is a Made-Up Place, will be out from Sawilo Press a little later this year, and for updates, you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in this season. It's been my pleasure to produce this show and a privilege to talk with memoirists I so admire. And now to my guest for this episode, Dr. Ginger Campbell, for a conversation about memory, truth, and memoir, another topic that comes up so much for memoirists. Today, my guest is Dr. Ginger Campbell. Dr. Campbell started podcasting in 2006 and was recently inducted to the Podcast Hall of Fame. Her shows include Brain Science, Books and Ideas, and Graying Rainbows, coming out LGBT plus later in life. Her most well-known show, Brain Science, explores how recent discoveries in neuroscience are unraveling the mystery of how our brains make us human. Dr. Campbell is also the author of Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty, and she practiced palliative medicine in Alabama. Welcome, Ginger. Hi, Renita. It's so great to talk to you again. <laughs> it's so great to have you here. And a little background. We met at the She Podcast Conference in October in Arizona. And I knew of your work prior to that because of some posts you'd made on Facebook. And I grabbed you and went right over to you. I made a beeline for you at the opening night festivities. And I said, Dr. Ginger Campbell. <laughs> and we started, do you remember that? And you looked at me sort of confused. I was like, I know who you are because I recognized you from your photo. And and we were may have, may have even been wearing masks, but I still recognized you. And then I went to your 
talk on on the brain and memory and was writing down notes because I was thinking about developing this podcast, Let's Talk Memoir. And then I reached out to you and here you are. Yeah. So I, I've asked you to be my guest because I... I think that for memoirists, this question comes up about memory and people reading memoirs. And I've heard this in comment. I've heard this and I've seen this in comments, even in reviews. How could this memoirist remember this word by word? How can they write this scene when they were so young? Why, why are we supposed to believe this memoirist and what they're remembering here? And so what I want to talk about with you today is the idea of memory in the brain. So can you explain a little bit about how memory works? Sure, so the first important principle to understand is that how it doesn't work. <laughs> it's not like, a, you know, a video recording where, where you record every little detail. So every time you remember something, you actually recreate the memory. So if, if, I, if you were being, your brain was being scanned, what you would see is the parts of your brain would be active that would be the same parts as when you experienced it. For example, a visual area might light up about when you're thinking about a vision of something, the vision of something. But the tricky part is when you remember something, things you've learned and things that have happened since the original event get incorporated into the memory and you can't tell the difference. So for example, if something really memorable happens, say for someone my age, it would be President Kennedy's assassination. At the time, you're, it's very memorable. It's what's called a flashbulb memory. It's very, you know, I mean, impactful. But you start to talk to other people after the event, and what happens is you may incorporate some of their memories into your memory, right? And mm -hmm. so you can't, but you can't tell the difference. I mean, you really can't. So you have the memory, it's now what it is. There was a famous study done at the time of the Challenger disaster, which I think was in 1986. Yeah, um, I remember that. Yeah, that was my yeah. big memory. <laughs> right. So mm -hmm. they some psychologists actually talked to, I'm pretty sure it was college students because those are the ones that usually take part in psychology experiments. They asked them, you know, to write down, you know, what they were doing, how they felt, etc. Then they re-interviewed them a couple of years later, and the results were really surprising. Only 25% of the people's memories that they said at that time matched what they had originally written down. And what's really funny was there was actually one guy who said, well, I know that's what I wrote, but what I remember now is what really happened. <laughs> that's how strong you feel it. And one important principle is it doesn't matter how emotional the memory was. That doesn't improve its accuracy. Because a lot of times people think, oh, if it's something that's really important, then I will remember it more accurately. That's not true. So you might say, well, why? Why is memory so unreliable? Uh, and I apologize. I don't remember who I got this from because I've interviewed a lot of people about memory. The basic idea is the purpose of memory is not so that we can write a memoir. The purpose of memory is for our survival. Therefore, what's important is we incorporate stuff we learn along the way, right? So that we will make mm -hmm. better actions in the future. And that's why memory is the way it is, you might say from an evolutionary standpoint, is that 
by adding stuff along the way, it helps us to make decisions in the future. So the accuracy is not as important as, as you know, the usefulness of the memory. That's so interesting to me. And I remember you saying something like similar to that or that was one of the points you made in your talk. And I, I realized that that's so the, it's an evolutionary skill. It's, it's needed in our, in our human experience and for our survival to be able to amend the memory. Right. So you might think, since I know your listeners are writing memoirs, well, then what should I do, right? I would say one other thing is that it actually is very easy to install false memories in people. You know, back in the 90s, there was all this repressed memories stuff, and people yes. went to prison and everything. There's a psychologist named Elizabeth Loftus. You can look up her work if you want, but she was the person who really debunked all that stuff and put an end to that because she showed experimentally how easily it is to install false memories, especially if you're dealing with memories of your early childhood, the kind that people challenge. What I would suggest is that if the thing you're, you want to share is important. That is in the sense that it could hurt or help another person, whether or not that thing is true. Then you pretend that you're, instead of a memoirist, pretend that you're a historian, okay? What would a historian do? A historian would go to different sources. And remember, historians have to work off of what people have written down too, right? And right. may or may not truly. So what they do is they they go to different sources, they compare them, they, they come up with their best guess of what really happened, right? Mm -hmm. So a memoir, if you're writing a memoir, you're sort of doing the same thing. So if you're writing about those parts of your life that were really early on that you may not accurately remember, and you even know that, hmm. you might say, hey, can I, are there some independent sources that I can check to see I mean, that's kind of how they did it when they were trying to figure out whether some of these weird things that people claimed happened to them when they were little kids happened, was they couldn't find mm -hmm. any corroborating evidence, right? Are you talking, in, 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 in addition, are you kind of mentioning like child sexual abuse and, and right, things right, like right. that? But yeah, it wasn't just the abuse. I mean, there were people who claimed that, you know, they'd been, you know, tortured by satanic rituals and all kinds of things that, you know, were just totally ridiculous, there was no evidence this, that they had happened. You know, the, the, the abuse part is trickier, right? Yes, it brings to mind Laura Davis's book. And Laura Davis, she wrote The Courage to Heal. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, it was really, really popular, it sold so many copies. And it was really about child sexual abuse. And then there was a lot of backlash because they were, you know, professionals were trying to prove that these memories had been implanted and, you know, that they weren't true. And there was a whole bunch of, there's a talk show circuit. It's it's all in her, her latest book, um, The Burning Light of Two Stars. And, you know, she's going to be a guest on an up upcoming episode of Let's Talk Memoir. But, you know, I'm wondering also in terms of justice, you know, how dangerous right. memory is. Right. And so, you know, it's, the thing is, that if for most people who've had traumatic events, they actually do remember them. The problem is not the not remembering, it's the fact that they can't forget. I mean, that's the reason why the, the people like Elizabeth Loftus have worked so hard against that, you know, um, those repressed mm -hmm. memory therapies. Mm -hmm. I mean, because that's when you have to be suspicious. When, when it is something that you didn't remember until somebody helped you remember it, 
You know, I actually, my, I even had my own personal experience with this. Back in the 90s, I, I worked with a therapist once, and, I mean, she started steering me in that direction, and I was like, no. I mean, I didn't even know anything <laughs> about any of this then. It just didn't feel right to me. Mm-hmm. I was like, why do you want me to remember you know, I wasn't having any problems that would be like caused by something I didn't remember. And I just quit going to her. So it's, it's really dangerous. And then, you know, um, then the whole thing, if you've read the book, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, have you read that book? (laughs) No, I've heard of it. Okay, it's a book about cognitive dissonance. And Mm -hmm. one of the chapters is about the the reaction of the therapist in that field to the discovery that that it was easy to i think most of these therapists were sincere but how easy it is to instill or create memories in people of things that didn't happen and why were you know a lot of them really resistance to this discovery because you know they had their they were invested into this as a therapeutic modality Mm -hmm. i mean just like there's cops who are against DNA analysis. They think their gut tells them who did it. <laughs> yeah, but um, but I don't I don't want to get down too far into that rabbit hole. I mean, I mm-hmm. know that there's a lot of people that that's important to, but I think for most of us, there's a lot more, uh, you know, practical aspects to this. Like when you're talking to a sibling about your childhood, you discover right away that you don't have the same memory of of the right. events. Right. Right. So, I mean, that's a very typical example. And so I think a real important principle, this goes beyond writing a memoir, is, you know, starting a feud with somebody or accusing somebody of lying because they remember events differently is a problem. Mm. Uh, I mean, um, even accusing a politician of lying because their accounting of events evolves over time, you know, actually, that's kind of the way memory really works. And, you know, if you have a relative that tells a story, you know that stories get changed the more often they're told. (laughs) And it doesn't mean the person is lying. Mm, Gosh, that's so interesting. Do you think there is such a thing? As absolute truth and memory? I guess I would have to say no. Uh, because, like I said at the beginning, that's not what memory really does. Memory is more like um, a decision-making tool that is, you know, survival takes trumps trumps the truth. Um, mm-hmm. And it, ha- it does have implications. For example, uh, especially in justice, which is the area that Elizabeth Loftus is most involved in now. She's also shown how easy it is to identify the wrong people in lineups and things. The last time I saw her speak in person, she did this thing where she showed us these pictures, you know, which one was it, which one was it, and got us all to pick the wrong person. She showed how easy it, it was to do. You know, what we really ought to be doing when it comes to eyewitness testimony is, in my opinion, is that the police should talk to everybody as soon as possible before they talk to anybody else, record what they say then, and use that. Not mm-hmm. use what they say five years from now when it finally goes to court, and they've already talked to everybody else, and their memory has gotten merged together with everybody else's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what you're making me realize is that, it, you know, because sometimes I, I can find scraps of paper or notes or you can find descriptions of something that you wrote in the moment when it happened. But that isn't necessarily 
that's still colored by your recollection of what just happened. Like yeah. even if you write something down that has just happened, it's already changing perhaps as you write down a- an account of it. But it's not going to get any more accurate than the first time. Right, 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 right. I mean, you know, and unfortunately, that's not what the police think. And that's not what they say on TV shows. Oh, let me know if you think of something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, maybe. But the problem is the something else you think of gets less and less reliable the more you talk to other people about the event. Well, um, then, can we actually trust our memories? I mean, should we trust our memories ever? Well, I, I think we don't really have any choice. I mean, the reality, <laughs> the reality is, you know, people want certainty. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that most of the time we're making decisions on incomplete information. And if we didn't have a sense that we were right, we would be we would be frozen. I mean, my sister had this roommate in college who couldn't even decide whether she wanted to go to the movies. I think her mother had always made every decision for her. So, you know, we would be we would be frozen by indecision if we couldn't make decisions in the face of uncertainty. It's always a matter of, of probabilities, you know, that, mm-hmm. that so-called Bayesian um, logic, right? When you're thinking about your memory, you have to go, you know, you know, what is the likelihood that my memory is correct? You know, mm-hmm. and, and that's the mm-hmm. best you can do. And if you're not sure, then, you know, don't make decisions on something, important decisions in that in that situation. Get more information. I mean, most of the time, most of the time it really doesn't matter, right? But sometimes it really matters a lot. Right. And and I think this comes up a lot for memoirists because there is a lot at stake. There's family relationships, loved ones, you know, in some cases, legal issues. Um, and in those cases that become a little more serious, you know, oftentimes some lawyer will look at the manuscript just to see what, what the writer might be liable for. But, you know, something that we learn as memoirists is that your memoir is not necessarily it's not a story of what happened it's it's what you make of what happened to you or how you think about what happened to you and so I guess I'd like to throw out to you not being a memoirist yourself although you have written books and maybe you have touched on some memoirist you know aspects you know do you think because the brain is evolving to learn and survive in our active memory is the way we think about what has occurred trying to tell us something that is useful i hope so (laughs) (laughs) you know i I, i'm not a memoirist true i have read i think my share of memoirs and the first book that comes to my mind when you say memoirist is i think of angela's ashes right and i'm sure that there's stuff in there that's not quite accurate but it didn't hurt anybody and and you certainly get a sense of what that time was like from that memoir. So I think the the real important question is what are you what are you trying to accomplish with your memoir? I mean, do you are you I assume you're not just writing it for yourself. I mean, the first time you write it, maybe you write the nitty-gritty everything that you would want to th- version Right. And then if you've got to publish it, maybe there's things you won't put in there because you don't want to hurt people that are still alive. Right. 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 But in terms of like if you think about, you know, you say that we're trying to learn from our memory. That's what memories 
purpose is, is to help us learn and evolve. And that's why the memory changes. So it, it's interesting to me because I feel like the memory can become sort of an echo chamber, right? You know, we mm-hmm. can just keep on chomping on that bone and, and it just becomes more and more concentrated, the memory and the memory and the memory without any other influence because our brains are at work on the memory, which is why I think it's important to let other perspectives in and to do some research, like you mentioned. Of course, in some cases, it's not possible because people are gone or you really were the only person in the space with one other who is not able to weigh in. So I guess there is no absolute truth, but where I'm headed with the conversation is to ask, you know, is it valid the way you remember something, is it valid in its own way? I think so. I mean, I've noticed in recent years, you know, that now that most memoirists are aware of this issue of the accuracy of their own memories, um, most of the memoirs that I've read more recently have started with, this is how I remember it. I realize that this may not be right um, exactly what happened, which, you know, I don't, that might be something the lawyer told him to write, but I still think that it's valid, especially because you don't know who's reading. And a person who who may be reading may not know the same things that that you know now about how memory works. I, I think it's important that memoirists understand the limits of the accuracy of memory. And then you're, I think you're fine as long as you're not, you know, intentionally writing something that's going to hurt another person, you should be, you should be okay. Yeah. Is there anything memoir slash memory adjacent that you would like to add, you know, in our last few minutes? I really don't have anything else to add. We've been really intense in the memory um, slot, and it's kind of <laughs> gotten me totally in that slot. Um, right, right, uh, right. Yeah. Um, I guess the, the thing to remember, and you're the you're far more well-versed in the brain and, and far more entrenched in all the research, but I guess the, the brain is a, a really changing thing at all times. It's just, it's, it's programmed to grow. It's programmed to survive. And so to try to pin down these details as absolute truth or make a record of something that you experienced is, is necessarily going to have to be a little bit flexible and fluid. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is our, our, our brain, you know, it creates our experience. You know, and, and to that extent, there's a certain truth to that sort of, you know, matrix view of life. Although I don't think it's a computer simulation, I think being embodied is a very, very important part. But we only know what's going on in the world through the information that as it gets processed by our brain. You know, I think the more you understand about how, how this works, um, the the better it is. I did just think of one other thing, and, and that is, I think important to the memoirist, and that is that most of what our brain is doing is unconscious. And I don't mean in the, you know, pseudoscience Freudian unconscious. I mean, you can't get to it at all. All Mm -hmm. the introspection in the world can't get you to the things your brain does, for example, to create what you see. Consciousness is really just a tip of the iceberg of what our brain is doing. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's really, it's profound. <laughs> it's kind of, uh, it's so vast. And uh, I, th- I think there's a part of me as a memoirist and, and just as a person uh, who has come to this age that wants to think that I'm kind of in control or I understand what my, you know, motives are and why I behave the way I do. And I'm on top of it. But you just, um, yeah, you just reminded me that I'm not. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, this goes way back to the ancient Greeks, right, that we've appreciated this. And I'm not, I, I, and the thing that we know, understand now that the ancient Greeks who also, you know, Aristotle thought that all that the brain did was cool the blood. So, um you know, but they still thought there was this reason that was separate from everything else. And that's, that's not true. I mean, our emotional aspects are just as much a part of our decision making as as anything logical. We can't be mm-hmm. Mr. Spock. Um, <laughs> and um, it's good to, you know, I think the great thing about memoirs is that people do uncover some of the emotional origins of how they got to be the way they are. And, and that gives them some insight they can share with others that help them. I mean, I think that's why memoir remains one of the most popular genres, despite, you know, the subset of people that don't think memoirs are worthwhile. I'm a big fan of memoirs myself. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad to know that. I asked you I asked you to be my guest without realizing that you did, in fact, like memoirs. So that's, <laughs> that's a win-win. Um, so where can people find you and your work and your podcast? I have a website at virginiacampbellmd.com. But brainsciencepodcast.com is probably easier to remember. Either one of those are good. Have links, you know, to my emails and my social media. I'm Doc Artemis on most social media. I'm not on TikTok, but anything else. (laughs) That's okay. I don't know why I'm on TikTok. Um, I'll link in the show notes to to your, your podcast and your website. Thank you so much, Virginia, for being my guest. It's really been a pleasure. I enjoyed talking to you again. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here. 